Morning, New Hope family. We have a substantial task before us this morning. We're working through a hard question series, and um, this is the second one in it. Two weeks ago was what, what are baptisms about, and this week is why should I believe the Bible? It's a question that comes pretty repeatedly to us here throughout the course of a year. Just recently heard it again this week. I had individuals wondering, legitimately wondering, why should I believe the Bible? and the things that obviously implicitly go with it. Earlier this week, I received a note from a friend uh, in regards to the church in China, and these two elements go together. We know that the church in China is under great persecution. Um, it, it appears that um, recently there's some pretty strong crackdowns on those who name the name of Christ, especially on house churches in Asia. But in China specifically, this particular issue is going on in which house churches are being required to put AI technology inside their homes, um, identifying specifically individuals who attend the church. And so they want to use face recognition technology to build a, a file, a file system about individuals who are participating in the house churches. So that can't obviously bode well because the, the church in China is known for being persecuted and, and many times individuals thrown in prison because of their belief in Jesus. And using face recognition technology is going to be employed in order to build a social credit score system against Christians. Is that same type of persecution coming this way? I don't know. I know that this element to be true, when you say that you believe the Bible and what the Bible contains, you have to do something with the information that's in it, and that may cause you, like in the church in China, to have to say, we follow Jesus and we put Him in a preeminent position, and that many times offends certain governments around the world. So we're left with a question this morning for ourselves, why should I believe the Bible? In 2021, what's there to cause me to either be strengthened in what I already know or to help me wrestle through these things that we hear continually here in the church? We're going to be wrestling through questions like that over the course of the summer. This big one I decided to put here at the beginning because all the answers that we will be addressing through hard questions emanate from this, this very, very ancient document. So I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you about the church in China, and I'd love to pray with you about what we're about to examine this morning, and I invite you to do that with me. Would you join together in prayer? Father, we come before you with our heads bowed in reverence towards you, recognizing that you are superior and we're definitely inferior, and yet you have made us clean and precious in your sight. We lift up to you our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in China, God, that are suffering persecution. We, we pray, Father, that you would be not only close to them, and, and there's so many that it's hard to begin to get our mind around how many individuals are going through persecution, Father, but I pray specifically for a revival in that nation. I pray for a revival in our own nation, but God, I pray for it in China that the government leaders would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's what will change things, God. So we pray not only that the persecution would produce its, its fruits and the outcome that you want it to produce, but God, that you would bring people into the kingdom, that you are obviously rapidly growing that church. Father, for our sake here in this nation and for the sake of new hope this morning, 
I pray that as we examine these things that you've laid out and you've made so clear, that you would cause us to trust you greater. And for those who have questions, God, that you would stimulate the mind, that you would bring conviction upon the soul. And Father, more than that, that you would confirm. So we, we ask for that. And that can't happen just by us merely examining these things, but rather because you are working through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we invite that. I pray for your blessing on this time, and I ask for it in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. The Bible makes declarative statements about the origins of the universe. It makes declarative statements about your future. Things we haven't seen on either side. We haven't lived in ancient days, and so we don't know, and we haven't lived in the future, so we don't know, but yet the Bible declares that it knows. And if that were not enough, it also speaks emphatically about the God who created all of this and who continues to reign. If these epic truths are legitimate, that means the Bible is the most important source material in the world. Not just in the history of the world, but in the world today, it is the most important if all of those things are true. That means the magnitude of the significance of this particular document demands that it withstand scrutiny. It has to stand up to the world's most intense scrutiny. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if you're a believer in Jesus, it can stand up to that scrutiny. So for a believer in Jesus, it's that very aspect that gives you reason to have confidence this morning. But for those who are not there yet, for those who are not yet convinced, I'm going to ask you this morning to give fair consideration to the things that we're about to examine. My desire for you is that not only will you find this evidence testable and provable and observable, but also that you too might willingly one day join the writer of Psalms 19 when he makes declarations about God. Let me put you on the screen to your attention to look at what I'm talking about. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Say amen if you agree with that statement. I know that statement to be true, but not everybody is convinced of it. But God says, I will restore your soul because my word is that perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I'm here just this morning just to say I'm one of those simple ones, and, and God has added wisdom to my life because of His Word. But it goes on to say, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And right out of the gate, you find the Bible declaring that it does things like no other text on earth. It's saying that it does things. It's making claims about its own capacity. And that Old Testament passage is a match for the things that were written in the New Testament. Let me show you this. It speaks about the Word of God being alive. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's completely unlike Moby Dick. It's completely unlike The Hobbit. It's not anything like a passage to India. It's nothing like War and Peace. And it's completely different than all the history books that have ever been written. No other book on earth makes those kind of claims that it can pierce and that it can probe and it can do heart surgery. 
Surgeons use scalpels to physically cut to get to the heart muscle. God says, I can go right to the heart. I can go to the core of your brain. I can go right to your mind. And no other document in the world makes these kind of claims. So first, allow me, if you will, you've noticed I'm using intentional circular reasoning here at the very beginning, and I'm just going to stay with circular reasoning for just a few minutes, and then we'll go to external reasoning, some of the evidences and the proofs that we find outside of the Bible. First of all, I want to emphasize with you that the Bible is very unique in its origin. The Bible says this about itself. Paul writes this when he writes to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. There's only two places in the Bible where we're told God breathed something. He created mankind and then breathes the breath of life into mankind. That's one form of God breathing. And then we're also told in the New Testament that God breathes into His Word because God is alive. Everything He does has life to it. So He breathes life into creation. And when his words speak, his words have life. Thus the writer saying, the word of God is living and active and sharpeth. So Paul can confidently write to Timothy, all scripture is God breathed. In other words, what it's saying is before any thought ever reached the pen of a biblical writer, all the original writings, all the words from God were initiated and originated by God to those writers. The Holy Spirit inspired those writers to write the very thoughts of God and inspired their mind, thus we call it biblical inspiration. Let me help you with that thought. Peter wrote about this very issue. You see this on the screen, 2 Peter 1.20. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter's writing declaratively that the Bible never had its origins in human minds, but God spoke through human minds who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me have them put the phrase back up on the screen for you just a minute again. You guys, thank you for putting that up. Your translation of the Bible might say carried along. The New American Standard Version says moved along. They both have the same thought of this. If you've been to Traverse City before and you've stood on the shores of the West Bay or maybe Old Mission Peninsula and looked out over the water in the summertime, you may have noticed a tall sailing ship. That's a ship that takes people out on tours. And it has three masts and on the main mast and the outer mast, there are sails that go all the way up to the very top, to the crow's nest. On windless days, they're out of luck. But on days when the wind comes, it fills the sails and moves the ship in the direction that the captain wants it to go. What Peter's writing about is something that's very familiar to the ancient world. He's using this imagery borrowed from the sailing world, from the nautical world, in which God had individuals who raised their spiritual sails. If you were, they were in tune with God. And God, through the Holy Spirit, filled their sails and blew them or propelled them in the direction that He wanted them to go. That's the imagery that Peter's borrowing here. Now, I want you to catch the weight of this. Peter's an individual who's been an eyewitness to the things of Jesus. We know he wrote First and Second Peter. We also believe that the book of Mark is responsible from Peter, that Mark dictated the things that Peter saw and wrote them down. So we have an individual who's an eyewitness to the things of Jesus, and yet as an eyewitness, he says it's not dependent upon the eyewitnesses. It's dependent upon the Holy Spirit 
who filled the sails and moved those writers along. God didn't depend on the eyewitnesses. God the Spirit directed the recording of all their writings, giving them supernatural revelation, meaning this. The Bible itself is saying that the writings were directed and orchestrated by the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, using the personalities and using the eyewitness experiences of the humans who authored it. So when you open up your Bible this morning, maybe you have it electronically or you have a hard copy, when you open that up, you have eyewitnesses writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. An example of that would be from the Old Testament. Samuel says it this way, 2 Samuel 23, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, His Word is on my tongue. So Samuel says, I'm an author, I've been used, God's Spirit has spoken through me, but it's right on my tongue. And then I write it down. And because it carries the authority of God, it comes with massive warnings, like this one from Revelation 22. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So if anyone adds to it, if anyone takes away from it, there will be hell to pay. This is what the writers of Scripture say, and that's consistent with the Old Testament. Proverbs 30, Solomon said this, verse 5, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. So God says, my word demands a treatment unlike any other source material you will ever come across. And it demands that all of humanity respond to the content or suffer the consequences. But at this point, an individual who's not yet convinced, perhaps skeptical, could say, yeah, well, that's circular reasoning, Mark. You're using the Bible to prove the Bible. That's all internal stuff. What about the external evidence? Well, for the sake of the person who's not yet believing and might be asking in a very legitimate way, why should I believe? That person's looking for external confirmation. They're not just looking for the eternal, internal witness. Know this. Know that it's possible to test the veracity and the reliability of the Bible through historical, scientific, archaeological discovery. And as a result, the internal claims become that much more compelling. Look with me an example from Scripture. I want you to see that God says His Word can be tested. This comes from Psalm 1830. This God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord proves true. When I was working my way through college, I was in flight school and, and going through aviation training program along with going through Bible college, and I was working in a foundry. While working in a foundry, we were pouring molten steel, melted metal into molds, and it would take the shape and the form. This term that's being used here by this Old Testament writer is a term for metallurgy. The term tested and proved means something that's been shaped in a mold, it's been hammered, it's been pounded, it's been deluged in water, brought back out and re-hardened again. And God's saying, my word can be tested. It can be proved like hardened steel. Go ahead, take a shot at it. It's gonna stand up to the test. Well, when the internal evidence works in tandem with the external evidence, when the accuracy of the external matches the internal, 
You'd say, you'd say that that's a win if somebody's legitimately asking, why should I believe the Bible? Now, maybe this morning you're thinking, well, why spend energy on this? I am already a believer. I know what I believe. Well, the answer is for this reason. You care about the person asking. You care about people who are genuinely wondering who are in your social circle, people who you do life with. Let me give you an example of some of those individuals. I'm going to put some statistics up on the screen for you. We're told right now 93% of U.S. adults believe that Jesus was a real historical figure. Well, that's kind of encouraging, right? It's kind of good news. You'd say, wow, I didn't know it was that high. Okay, but I also believe that Abraham Lincoln was a real historical figure, right? And so we're going to go with, okay, well, we're talking about somebody who actually lived in history even though we didn't meet him. What about this next one? 90% of Americans own a Bible. Well, that's good. That's good, but they might have received that as a graduation gift, and maybe it's still sitting in wrapping paper on the shelf in their bedroom. Or maybe they inherited it from a grandparent. Because I don't think 90% of Americans are really reading their Bible on a regular basis, do you? 90% own a Bible, though. I just learned this week from Barna Research that 70% of Americans right now claim that they're Christian. That's a big drop. In 10 years, in, in 2010, 83% of Americans claimed they were Christian. But now, currently, 70, and that's higher than I would have thought, 70% of Americans say that they're Christians. But look at this one. 64% of U.S. adults believe that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. Now we're really narrowing it down, but I'll tell you that age matters a lot in this particular information. When you bear down into certain age groups, it really goes off the charts. So 64% of U.S. adults believe that Jesus was physically resurrected, but here's a really, really big one. And this is a reality check, and you've got to balance this against what you just heard. 44% of American adults contend that the Bible, the Koran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same spiritual truth. There's a reason the writers of the Bible said, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, you have to be ready to make a defense for why you believe what you believe, because these numbers are your neighbors. This is your social circle. These are your friends. These are the people who you do work with. So we find we have a gigantic gap issue. Wedged in the midst of the 90% who own a Bible, you find that half the nation believes in some form of a biblical slop. Yet you have Jesus on the other side saying, I am the way, I am the only way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one gets to the Father except by me. And don't you dare mess with my word, because if you do, you're going to deal with me. So where do you go when half of society says, yeah, I'm not sure God's really that rigid, and Jesus on the other side saying, yeah, he is that rigid. So you need to personally know, why do you emphatically believe the Bible? Let's just go with the big picture first. Let's imagine that we can pull out 40 individuals from this auditorium right now. We'll, we'll say that maybe 10 to 15 from this section here, and maybe another 10 or 12 from this section, and, and maybe the remaining group from over here in this section. And we've got 40 individuals, and we're going to send them out on a journey. Let's say we're going to take this first section and, and send them off to Africa. And we're going to take this next section, and we're going to send them off to Europe. And then we're going to take this next section, and we're going to send them off to Asia. So we've got three different groups, 40 different authors. 
with varying views on religion from every social economic background. So some will be kings and some will be paupers. Some will be statesmen and some will be fishermen. Some will be poets and some will be physicians. And they will be a group eclectically spread out over the course of 1,500 years. So we're going to take some from this group of 40 and we're going to send them all the way back to 500 A.D. And then we'll take another section and we're going to send them back all to 1,000 or 1,200 A.D. And then we'll keep this remaining group in 2021. 1,500 years span of time, 40 different people, all being given instructions to write on one subject and given the responsibility to come to the same conclusion and, oh, by the way, one group is going to speak in Greek, one group is going to speak in Hebrew, and the other group is going to speak in Aramaic. What are the chances that those 40 people are all going to come to the same conclusion? Would they all agree? The biblical writers represent exactly this. Moses is an Egyptian. Daniel is in Persia. Luke is a doctor. Peter is a fisherman in Galilee. Paul is from the Jew Roman Empire. He's a Jew writing from Rome. So we've got individuals in Europe and in Asia and in Africa. The Bible is written by 40 different authors over the course of 66 different books. Yet, there's complete thematic harmony. The circumstances of the biblical writing seems to guarantee fallibility, that it's actually going to fall apart. But yet... From Genesis to Revelation, it's amazingly consistent with same thematic harmony. What you hold in your hands this morning, if you hold a copy of God's Word, you hold a miracle. It's a miracle, and very few people recognize this is a living miracle. Now, the Bible is completely unique in its survival, and I want to help you to understand what I mean by that. Compared to other ancient writings... There is more manuscript evidence for your Bible than any other 10 pieces of classical literature combined. I'll repeat that in just a moment. I want to help you to understand what I mean. That's a huge statement. Look with me on the screen at this statement from Dr. Warwick Montgomery. To be skeptical of the text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Now, let's see if that statement is true. Let's see if that can really hold up, because that could be just a fan of the Bible. I'm a fan of the Bible. He could be just a fan of the Bible, and he's trying to use circular reasoning to support his position. So how do we actually test it? How do we see if it has the metal that God says it has in Psalm 1830? Well, the reliability of the Bible should be able to be tested and scrutinized in the way that all other documents in the world are examined by. You may have seen some of this before, especially if you've been at New Hope any length of time, like five years or more, but I'm just going to show you maybe for three minutes here something that hopefully will really burn in your brain. Let me put up for you on the screen the way that scholars measure the authenticity of documents, especially ancient documents. They use this three-position formula the number of existing manuscripts, the dating of manuscripts, and the portion of proportion of variant readings. They always use this same measuring rod. So let's refer to the Bible for the first category, the number. In regards to the Bible, the number of existing manuscripts 
written in the Greek language is 5,300 manuscripts in existence. In the form of Latin, there's 10,000 Latin manuscripts in existence. There's 9,300 other forms of early documents, early manuscripts, and they total 24,000 in 2021. Now, what do I mean by manuscripts? Prior to Gutenberg inventing the printing press, everything had to be copied down by hand. Obviously, you know that in that day, they didn't have paper, they had vellum, they had animal skin, and it was very, very expensive to reproduce a book. Not only expensive, but it was time-consuming. So individuals had to measure out every T, every I, every comma, every period, and make sure by counting that they put it exactly in the position that it was supposed to be in. In 1844, the Codex Sinaiticus was discovered. The Codex Sinaiticus is based on, the name comes actually from Mount Sinai, if you're wondering, by the way. Uh, an individual who was an archaeologist was out at Mount Sinai, and he went to see a monastery. I think it's called St. Martha's. I'm not really sure. You can check me on that. Don't do it right now. Um, so he went to Mount Sinai, and he's visiting with the people who are working there. And he spies on a shelf in a dusty chamber, a back area where most people never go, a series of scrolls and parchment papers and animal skins, and they're all kind of stacked together. And he asked what it was, and they said, we don't know. It's, it's been there for generations. It's been handed down to us. He asked if he could examine it, and very carefully as an archaeologist, he began leafing through the pages very, very cautiously. What he discovered was they had a copy of the Bible from 325 A.D., written in the New Testament in its original New Testament Greek form, handwritten, and also in the Septuagint form, which is ancient Greek, biblical Greek, the Old Testament. Obviously, he gathered it up right away, asking, I need to keep this. This has become the most precious manuscript document in the world. That's what I mean by manuscript, manually scripted onto paper or animal skin or vellum. The Bible ranks first in the world in all manuscript evidence by a factor of 10. I hope you understand what I mean by that in just a moment. Let's move forward into the dating. How do they date these things? The New Testament's original documents date to between 40 A.D. and 100 A.D. It's believed that Paul finished, or John finished the book of Revelation somewhere around 99 or 100 A.D. So the book of Revelation is at the very end of the Bible. It was the last thing written in the New Testament. Non-biblical works of antiquity, things that are not the Bible, have an average gap between the original and the earliest available copy of more than 1,000 years. In the case of the Bible, the average gap between the New Testament original documents and the nearest known copy is only 25 years. John died in 100 AD after writing the book of Revelation, yet in 125 AD, the first copy, handwritten copy of the New Testament is produced. Now, obviously, the greater the gap of time, the greater potential for human error in transposing those things that they're writing down. So we've hit so far the number and we've hit the dating. Now let's talk about the variant readings, and then I'm going to bring all three of these things together for you. It'll, it'll make sense as we put a bow tie on it. Among ancient literature, the most regarded, most respected among those who study ancient literature is Homer's Iliad. 
Homer's Iliad is based on the city of Troy. Some of you have seen the movie with Brad Pitt. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The, the movie Troy came out a few years ago and really smashed the box offices. Homer's Iliad is about the city of Troy. It was produced in 900 BC. There's 643 remaining documents today of Homer's Iliad. They're copies of the original. The original has been lost to time. But somewhere around 400 BC, somebody began reproducing Homer's Iliad. It was very popular in the ancient world. So the original documents lost to time, but copies are beginning to be produced. And today, which is amazing, there's 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. Now, it's the second most trusted ancient document in all the world. When people speak of ancient documents, they speak of Homer's Iliad. Let's stack up Homer's Iliad against the New Testament. Look at me on the screen. I want you to see this chart because if you're like me, you're very visual and it helps you to compare numbers and stack them this way. So we see the work Homer's Iliad was produced in 900 BC. The first known copy is produced in 400 BC. There's 500 years between the original and the first known copy. Today, there's 643 copies. The New Testament is written between 40 and 100 A.D. The first known copy is produced in 125 A.D., meaning only a 25-year window between the original and the copies. And there's 24,000 more than that manuscripts that exist today. Now put that together with this. The New Testament contains approximately 20,000 lines Line meaning like this. This is John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, line one. The Word was with God, line two. And the Word was God, line three. So in the New Testament, there's 20,000 lines like that, of which 40 are in question. That's less than one half of 1%. Homer's Iliad contains 15,600 lines. 764 are in question. That's 5%. So the second most respected document in all of the world of antiquity has over 18 times more variance than the New Testament, and it's only three quarters its length. The sheer number of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament that we possess tremendously narrows the margin of doubt as to its accuracy. How many of you have ever heard someone say, you can't believe the Bible, it's full of errors? Probably professors in college, right? A lot of individuals that you might interact with, people who are regurgitating things that they've heard. What do they mean when they say it's full of errors? This is part of what scholars use to assemble these pieces together. Let me put this on the screen for you. Of the half percent of New Testament variances, only one-eighth of those amount to anything more than a stylistic difference or a misspelling. Here's an example of that. Number one, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. Do you notice what's missing? The D. Line two, Christ Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. What's different there? Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Number three, Jesus Christ, I is missing, S, the Savior of the whole, not an E, but a D put there, world. Number four, Jesus Christ is the, E is missing on the, Savior of the whole, O is missing on the word whole, world. 
The majority of the variants involve nothing more than a missing letter or a misspelling or a reversal of order. So when you hear someone say, you can't believe the Bible, it's full of errors, this is exactly what they're talking about. Because some scholars have said there's errors in the Bible. Somebody transposed that to say it's full of errors. Somebody else repeated it to say you can't trust it, it's full of errors. And especially because that started around the 1800s here in the United States. Prior to the Age of Enlightenment, that issue didn't exist so much. Let me take you to what I'm talking about because the world of archaeology has really helped a great deal with this as it's unearthed the evidences for the proof of the Bible. In the world of archaeology, the Bible is consistently confirmed. I didn't know if you knew that, but I needed to share that with you. But don't just trust me. Go to somebody like from John Hopkins University, Dr. William Albright. He said it this way, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. Dr. Albright was a professor of Old Testament at John Hopkins University, one of the world's foremost archaeologists. How can he say that? Especially when my professors in the university say, you can't trust it. It's not believable. Know this, let's go back to the Codex Sinaiticus, the one that was discovered in 1844. That is considered to be the most precious manuscript that's in existence today. It's so precious that it's been seen by less than four scholars in the last 20 years. Some of it's at the museum in London, at the British History Museum. Some of it is in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan. It's, it's scattered around different museums around the world. You can't get in to see it, I know. I've been on a waiting list for seven years. I've been waiting to get into Ann Arbor just to see John 18, and they won't let me see one word. It's that precious. It's that reserved. It's only held for those who specialize in archaeology. The Codex Sinaiticus, I told you, dates back to 325 A.D. When he discovered it in 1844, what he found was the whole Bible had been written down, handwritten, and it was written in the Old Testament, Old Greek Septuagint, and the New Testament, New Testament Greek, to match those who lived during that period of time. It wasn't, though, until 1947 that its accuracy was completely validated with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let's put an image for you up on the screen of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I know many of you have heard of it. Maybe you've never spent any time investigating it. You're not sure exactly what it is. Just a brief rundown. In the Qumran Valley in the northern part of Israel, the Qumran Valley contains these caves. In these caves, ancient people put copies of the Bible and they put them in vases and they stored them away. Because the desert is extremely dry, they were preserved over 2,000 years. Know this though, they were written 200 years before Jesus lived. So they're copies of the Old Testament. Individuals who lived 200 years before Jesus are sitting in a cave, painstakingly dipping a feather in ink and repeating the information on the animal skin that they have or the vellum paper. And they're transposing it and then storing it away. Why is that so significant? Because as they discovered the book of Isaiah among those scrolls, they began comparing it to the Codex Sinaiticus which was written in 325 AD. And then they began comparing it to the Bible that you hold in your hands today. 
Do you know that it's word for word exactly the same in 95% of its contents? And the other 5% represent misspellings or misplaced words? Does God know how to preserve his word or what? 200 years before Jesus, 325 AD, 1844, and 2021, and yet it reads exactly the same. And the world of archaeology stands up and takes notice and says, this is unlike anything else in human existence. Prior to 1947, the earliest known copy was the copy of Isaiah at a Masoretic text, and it dated to 900 AD. And yet they found that one in 900 AD matched all the other ones that I've just referred to. So the dating of the Dead Sea Scrolls moved the dating of God's word back 1,000 years, and there was no change whatsoever in the text. That's why you find professors at USC and at Baylor who specialize in these areas saying things like what you're going to see on the screen. Dr. Bernard Ram, Jews preserved it as no other manuscript has been preserved. They kept tab on every letter, syllable, word, and paragraph. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practical, perfect fidelity. Who ever counted the letters, syllables, and words of Plato or Aristotle? But the Bible came under global assault. 200 years ago, it became very fashionable during the Age of Enlightenment to attack the Bible. Right about the time Charles Darwin's appearing on the scene, individuals in the Age of Enlightenment are attacking the Bible, saying, you can't trust it. So what had previously been a trusted source in academia suddenly was transitioning over to one that they're saying couldn't be trusted. So Dr. Milo Burroughs at Yale, a very respected archaeologist, said this, the excessive skepticism, he means regarding the Bible, stems not from a careful evaluation of the available data, but from an enormous predisposition against the supernatural. Yet the past 100 years shows that the Bible has been consistently validated by archaeological discoveries. So you have another archaeologist like Dr. Nelson Gluck. He says this, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. You catching the weight of that? No archaeological discovery known to man has ever refuted one detail in regards to the things that the Bible claims. It's true. It's increasing archaeological discoveries that continue to authenticate the Bible. So 200 years ago, during the Age of Enlightenment, it became very fashionable to say, there's no way Moses wrote Genesis or Exodus or Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Numbers. I've just named for you the Torah. So that was repeated again in universities around the world. And here's why it was repeated. Because until the time of the Bible, nobody appeared to have codified laws. Moses put together the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that God had given him. And scholars looked at it and said, there's no evidence that any other society existing in history ever had a system of laws. It had to have happened hundreds of years later, and then individuals wrote this and they attributed it to Moses, but there's no way that he wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It couldn't possibly be. Until in the world of archaeology, they discovered the Hammurabi Code. 
And I want to put that image for you up on the screen, and you might be wondering, what in the world am I looking at? Modern archaeology proved beyond a doubt that numerous legal codes predated Moses by 500 years. In the lands of Persia, laws had already been put in place. But in the early 1800s, it was just assumed that never existed, and so therefore the Bible's not legitimate, and Moses could not have written it because it was assumed that legal codes didn't exist at that time. But when the Hammurabi Code was unearthed, people had to recalculate. Now, that never made the front pages of the stories. People continued to repeat in the Bible classes saying, you can't trust it. It's not sound science. Here's a second one for you. I'm only going to give you two this morning. Here's the second one. It was widely held among scholars 200 years ago that the Bible was also inaccurate when it referred to these ancient cities, among them the Hittites, the Hittite Empire. Because the Bible refers to the Hittites over 50 times, and no one could find any evidence of it in sociology or in any of the historical records, they had to say, well, there's no evidence of it, so the Hittite Empire never existed. It's not possible until another archaeological discovery. Now, let me show you Exodus 3.8. God says this, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. I told you the Hittites are mentioned 50 times in the Old Testament. But in the world of academia, they use that as saying, no, it can't be. It never existed until 1876 when archaeologists unearthed what is known as the Hittite Empire. And so the next image you see on the screen is the entrance to the Hittite Empire, which was discovered in the last few years to have rivaled the nation of Egypt, which is exactly what the Bible says, that they rose up against the Egyptians. And so you find the world of archaeology saying, this is a really prominent civilization to the degree that today, most archaeologists would say, yeah, that's a very legitimate empire. It completely did exist. Stop saying to people that it did not exist. It was a very prominent civilization. Now, I step a little bit off the cliff here into this next and very last one, and it has to do with the world of science. I'm out of my depth speaking about astronomy, so I have to let others speak for me, and I'm going to give you some quotes. I want you to see these things on the screen, and we start with Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein is very famous for this quote that you see on the screen. He said it exactly this way, science without religion is lame, religion without science is blind. By 1916, Albert Einstein was very irritated, and he was irritated because the theory of relativity was proving something that he didn't want it to prove. Albert Einstein had arrived at the theory that the universe is eternal that it's static, it's not moving, it's not expanding, it's always been here, and that's what he wanted the theory of relativity to prove. But he was irritated because his own theory was disproving the very thing that he held to. Now, fast forward to 1921, and you find him making that statement that you just saw, science without religion is blind or lame. By 1929, Albert Einstein is invited to the Mount Wilson Observatory in California. A man who's overseeing the Mount Wilson Observatory is known as Edwin Hubble. Today, we named the space scope after him, the Hubble Space Scope. 1929, Edwin Hubble invites Albert Einstein to come to California to look through the 100-inch lens 
because he wants Einstein to see exactly what he's seeing. Together they look through the lens and they see that all the observable galaxies that we can find through that 100-inch lens in 1929 are emitting what's known as a red shift. The red shift meaning that they're emanating energy as they move away from a single point of origin. It's where the thoughts of the Big Bang Theory were developed from that there was an originating point and everything is moving out from it and Albert Einstein was irritated to the degree that he had to rethink how he was approaching the origination of the universe. Astronomy has arrived at the point where it's confirming that time, space, and matter came into existence in one massive burst of energy. So now I lean into someone who knows way more about this than myself, Dr. Robert Jastrow. Fast forward to the 1990s and early 2000s, he's serving in the Edwin Hubble chair at the Mount Wilson Observatory in California. He wrote a book called God and the Astronomers, and it collectively caused the scientific world in astronomy to gasp when they read what this highly decorated individual pronounced. Let me show you his first quote. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Dr. Robert Jastrow giving his best explanation for what we believe to be describing the origins of everything. So he goes a little bit further. Watch this next quote. Astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happens as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. That's what caused the scientific world to collectively gasp. Can't believe he's saying that. But he's taking all the energy and all the information and combining it, saying, what are you going to do with the information? Know this about Dr. Jastrow. He, he was not a Christian. He was an agnostic. He wasn't seeking to prove the Bible. He was just going with the information that's in front of him. So I'll say it again. Astronomy, the science of astronomy is confirming that time, space, matter came into existence with one massive burst of energy. So I land on one last quote before we begin wrapping this up. And this quote comes from the ultimate source, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and, without, and with void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be. So what was recorded multi-thousands of years ago has taken the world of science thousands of years to catch up to what God had already said in the book of Genesis. I recognize that we've given very, very few examples this morning. There is so much that we have not addressed today. In your notes this morning, I've included books of references that you should be looking at, things that you'll want. My small group and one of our, a group of our staff over the last year, we went through a study called Is Genesis History? I would encourage you to pick that up. It's a DVD, very, very well done by Dr. Del Tackett. Is Genesis History? 
And you'll enjoy not only watching it, but you'll learn so much that you didn't know. But look at the list in the notes this morning of all the different books that are being recommended here. If you're really searching and looking, this is one that we're giving out this morning. And over in the prayer room, if you meet with Jeff after the service, there's this book called Is the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It's referred to in this list. You got somebody in your life that's asking questions? Take them to these sources. Here's what I want to end with. These details that we've looked at in history and in science, let alone prophecy, we didn't even begin to touch that. If, if these things crucially can't be found to support the Bible, you'd have to take the next step and ask yourself the question, is it reliable concerning my own eternal destiny? What about the issue I'm going through with my own health or with my broken relationship or with my job issues? If I can't trust it in these other areas, how can I trust it in that area? But ultimately, the evidences that we're examining, that we're talking about, they don't cut it on their own. Human reasoning certainly helps, and I never want you to be guilty of checking your brain at the door. Bring your intellect to the conversation. But know that the capacity goes far beyond the black and white to the point of the heart application, to the degree in which God can do heart surgery. It only happens because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit at work. We're going to quote Martin Luther here. Martin Luther said this in 1536. The Bible cannot be understood simply by study or talent. You must count on the influence of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to quote Martin Luther from 1536, we got to quote John Kelvin also, okay? Look with me at this. 1560, he said, the testimony of the Spirit is superior to reason. For these words, meaning Scripture, will not obtain full credit in the hearts of mankind until they are sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. We need not wonder if there are many who doubt as to the author of the Scriptures, for although the majesty of God is displayed in it, Yet none but those who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit have eyes to perceive what ought indeed to have been visible to all and yet is visible to the elect alone. I know the Bible to be the Word of God. I know it to be the source because of the source of its conviction. What's the source of its conviction? The internal witness of the Holy Spirit to my heart. I hope the same is true for you. I teach with the passion that I do because I love, I'm passionate about the Word of God because I understand it to be authenticated. Second Peter, let's look at it just one last time. Second Peter, Peter said this, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. That's that image of the sail filling up with wind and moving across the bay. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The same spirit that moved the prophets to write witnesses to your heart today that the word of God is in fact true. And the evidence internally and the evidence externally provide compelling arguments for why you can believe the Bible. But ultimately, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that moved those prophets to write it down is the same spirit that uses the word to confirm that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So in the end, it's about God's word telling sinners that they need a savior, that we stand in need of Jesus. 
which takes me to the last most compelling evidence. The most compelling evidence that this is legitimately the word of God is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason I say that's the greatest evidence is there's no way mankind would ever write that about themselves. If we were to paint a picture of ourselves, it would not be to paint a picture of us being very dark. Our pride nature wants to do anything but admit that we have sin. We lean towards making ourselves look good and we go to great lengths to try and prove that we are. But the Bible also teaches that humans can do nothing to fix our sinful state. We can't do anything about it. And that goes completely against human pride. And that's what sets Christianity apart from all world religions. All world religions say you can make yourself good enough that God will like you. The Bible says, no, you can't. Only God can make you good enough. Only Jesus could do that. So the summation of the issue is really this, 1 Corinthians 2.14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined, appraised, or discerned. The natural man cannot because he does not have the spiritual equipment. It does not believe because he cannot believe unless the Holy Spirit intercedes. So the natural man doesn't naturally go there because he can't. You want a great evidence that you actually belong to God and that you're in Jesus Christ? The Bible makes sense to you. If the Bible makes sense to you, it's because the Holy Spirit is working on you. If the Bible doesn't make any sense to you, you gotta recheck, am I legit about this? Am I serious in my relationship with God? But if it makes sense to you, you can put the pieces together and this morning you're saying, yes, this is actually legitimate stuff. I get this. That's the Holy Spirit confirming in you. This is the word of God because the Holy Spirit opens the minds, removes the blindness, gives complete understanding of God's revelation. I know the Bible is true because the spirit of God has convinced me of it. And for you to believe it and to trust it requires a mighty work of the Holy Spirit. So let's go out the door with this thought. The Bible makes startling claims, claims that set it apart from every other source material in the world. It claims that if you recognize that you do have sin and you can't do anything about it, but set your hope on Jesus Christ, eternity is waiting for you. There's nothing like that in the world. We've seen the Bible put to the test today. And when the Bible says there was a global flood, you can believe it. And when it says there was a Moses who led people out of Egypt, you can believe it. When it says there was a Hittite nation, you can believe there was a Hittite nation. But it's the truth that expands far beyond the internal and the external. The truth that expands to the eternal that captures our heart. When the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, we can believe that too. But better more, still much better more, is Romans 5, 8. Look with me at this church. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that would be incomplete if we didn't finish it off with John three sixteen. John 3 says this, whoever believes in him shall not perish, 
but have eternal life. There's a good reason to believe the Word of God, isn't there? I pray, church, I really do. I've prayed for you all week that you would take this boldly, that you would retain the information. Take it with you as you go out into the workplace, as you go into the marketplace, as you engage in your social circle. Let's pray about that very issue. Would you join me in that? Father, we close now with this request of you. First of all, acknowledgement. God, you are awesome. Man, I can't believe the way you sewed this all together. Thank you, Father, for the work of the Spirit and for the miracle that we hold in our hands. God, I, I pray that the passion that we feel towards your word would translate into genuine, honest, kind conversations with people. And that we would be willing to point them in the, in the direction that would give them answers. Because people are really searching, Father. So, God, I ask that you would take what we've studied this morning and you would translate it into a boldness, into a confidence, also into a humility. That we would be confident enough to speak for you as we engage our friends. Father, bless us now. Bless us for this time that we spent examining your word. Use it for the expansion of your kingdom. We pray for that in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. If you'd like to meet this morning, I'd love to meet you. If we haven't, I'll be right here in the front, but over in the prayer room will be Jeff, and you can engage with him if you have something you'd like to pray about this morning. In the meantime, have a good week.